I'm Adam Rappaport. Welcome to the Bon Appetit Podcast, where we talk about food and drink and recipes and cooking and chefs and restaurants and all that good stuff with the editors of Bon Appetit and some very special guests. Today we are talking holidays, and with me is Andrew Knowlton, restaurant and drinks editor, and Julia Kramer, associate restaurant editor. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey, Adam. This is our last podcast of 2014. So today we are talking holiday entertaining, which you might want to call holiday partying. Now, Knowlton, you're our drinks guy. Now, I would argue that the key ingredient to any great holiday party is a ham. I have a feeling that you might say punch. Ham would be a close second, but yeah, I would say a punch. I think the most important thing at a holiday party, whether it's a office party or if it's one that you're throwing or even a family get-together, it has to have beverages, alcohol, ready the minute somebody walks through the door, period. That's the number one rule. I don't care if you're serving juice or if you're serving punch or you're serving straight bourbon out of a bottle. You need to have that stuff ready to go right away. As soon as someone walks in, takes their coat off, they have a drink in hand. That's the biggest icebreaker, I think, when somebody walks in because they're like, oh, what do I do now? And then you're standing next to somebody that you don't even want to be standing next to without a drink in your hand. Now, punch, I've had a lot of bad punches in college. I've also, since coming to Bon Appetit, I've realized or learned from you that punch can be beautifully, stunningly beautiful, delicious. What are some of the rules? What, what, what are the pointers that the home listener can take? Classically, punch means Five. In what language? Uh, that would be in Hindi. Literally? Yes, yes. So there was five ingredients in punch. So you would have citrus, you would have tea, obviously was a big deal. You'd have sugar, you'd have booze. And I'll check with the fifth. I always like, oh, bitters. You have to have bitters. Bitters. Okay. So those were the five ingredients that uh, is kind of the template. I mean, that doesn't really matter anymore. I think the most important thing is, like any good cocktail, is no matter what punch you're making, use fresh citrus. Don't use the bottled stuff. So like citrus juice. Citrus juice. Whether it's lime, lemon, oranges, grapefruit, squeeze your own. You know what we haven't talked about? The ice block. Oh. That's about, yeah. Visuals. Have you ever made one of these that no one likes to do in the magazine, all studded with pomegranate seeds and citrus slices, like suspended like in amber? How does he, How do you do that? Um, okay, I actually made one for Thanksgiving. It was really beautiful. I made it in a bunt pan. You just put, you know, thinly sliced lemon. I put some cranberries, fresh cranberries, because I had them. And it was a big mistake because the bunt pan was bigger than the bowl that I put the punch in. Oh, that's no JV. Way. That's JV, Kramer. <laughs> wow. So what'd you do? Crack it in half? Well, to get the ice out of the bunt pan, you can run it under hot water. So I just kind of ran it under for longer, <laughs> trying to make a smaller I, ice box. All right. I, I, I've seen this in our magazine, Bon Appetit. Um, and if you go to bonappetit.com and, and uh, search for punches, you'll see a lot of these beautiful ice molds, these rings. Um, and there's one where the, you've kind of got the, the citrus slices, lime, lemon, orange, like sort of lined up like dominoes. I tried to do that. I don't understand because they just float when you pour the water in. Like, how do you do that? How do you keep them in place, Knowlton? There's, I think there's a few schools out there on this. The one is that you put some water in the bottom of your bunt pan, just shallow to f- kind of get it slushy. Mm. Then you're adding your citrus. So it, it's not just you can't add everything all at once and then just put it in the freezer because yeah. it will float. Like you said, the citrus will float. So you make a slushy and then sort of then wedge them in there. Wedge them in and there then, and then you're doing layers. And then more water. Yes, exactly, and doing it in layers. So it's not 
the simplest thing out there. But I think any effort you make besides just throwing in refrigerator ice cubes, you'll see that even if it's just a bunt pan without any citrus in it or just float some star anise or something in the ice cube, I think that's the most important thing is just visually. It visually looks beautiful. And also you like that big block of ice because it melts more slowly than do small ice cubes. So it doesn't water down the punch as quickly. Exactly. Next thing coming up, we have our Bon Appetit holiday party, Kramer. What are your drinking rules at the office party every year? Um, Okay, everyone always says, you know, don't drink too much at the holiday party. You're around all your colleagues. You want to make a good impression. I've never been able to follow that advice. It's just I love the people I work with. I want to have a really good time hanging out with them. I, I think I was the first person doing karaoke at our last holiday party. My feeling is before you go to the holiday party, eat something. The holiday party starts at 6.30, have something to eat at 5. Don't be the guy sitting there at a table with his knife and fork by himself, sitting down to a full dinner. No, 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 this is a cocktail party. So lay a foundation before you go so that when you do start drinking, you're not drinking on an empty stomach. Right, and because it's easier to drink when you're talking to somebody than it is to have something chewing yes, in, in your, your mouth. mouth. So yes. Now, I, I'm with you, Kramer. Unlike I, Nolan has a very strict, like, two cocktails per holiday party rule. I think you should just go for it. This is like one day a year, it's okay to act like an ass. Like, you should be acting pretty silly at the holiday party, so the next morning we all have something to talk about. Um, I think, yes, it is a time to celebrate, to have fun, to get a little goofy. Lest our listeners think all we do is drink at this office, which, you know, we do our fair share of, we also eat and cook. So let's talk sort of holiday special dishes. What are our signature dishes? Kramer, what are you known for? Well, growing up, we always had latkes. Do you say latkes or latkes? So my cousin married this guy, and he, he so now he's a part of our family. He's horrified that we say latkes. He thinks we sound like non-Jews. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with him. Well, that I'm Jewish, and <laughs> the only way I've ever said it is latkes. I make, I think, the best latkes I've ever tasted. Uh-huh. Kramer's just wrong her eyes. Um, I know what my technique is. What's yours? To be honest, latke making in my family is always done as a group. Wow. So it's me, my mom, my it was my aunt, my cousin. We all get together. Everyone has an assigned role. All I've ever been allowed to do is to beat the eggs. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's like it's like you're a French apprentice at some like restaurant. You got to peel carrots for twelve years before, or like you know, Jiro dreams of sushi. You got to make yeah. rice for it. I'm not years. allowed to get so near. So are you going to break out on your own, Kramer? You know, a few years. Well, I, I was going to say I think the most important thing when you kind of strike at a on your own for the holidays, if you if you don't go home, is to make your own traditions. That's the most important thing. For so long, I was kind of like bound. I had so much baggage. Like, I have to do this or Santa Claus won't come if I don't make my mom's fish stew on Christmas Eve. And then I'd say three years ago, I was like, screw it. Uh, I still love her, but I'm going to do my own thing. So I've started doing kind of an abbreviated uh, Feast of the Seven Fishes on on Christmas Eve. An Italian tradition. An Italian tradition, which I am not Italian or Catholic. Nor is your Norwegian wife. Nor is my Norwegian wife. But I just, I like the seafood and I like the challenge. I mean, seafood's kind of easy to cook in terms of timing. You can do a lot ahead of time. So I've been, I did, I guess two years ago, I did seven courses. This year, I'm going home to Atlanta, so I'll probably do three uh, three or four. I usually do a nice risotto that has some sort of um, squid ink or and squid in it, uh, something always fried, whether it's shrimp, 
um, something raw, a crudo, and then I usually do some sort of fish, spicy fish stew. So that's kind of the tradition. I And then on, on Christmas Day, it's ham. It's country ham and biscuits and grits, and it's very Southern, and it'll never change. I think that's awesome. I also think it's awesome to start your own traditions, especially like at some point you realize you're like, wow. I'm 40, or I'm 45. I sh- it's okay for me to start my yes. answers. I have yes. children. Uh, let's do this thing. Uh, Kramer, what about you? Are you going back to Chicago for the holidays? No, I'm going to Los Angeles wow. with my in-laws. Do they celebrate the holidays yeah. in L.A.? Um, You're going to find out. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. What about you, Norton? Do you celebrate Hanukkah with any of your Brooklyn friends? I've been invited. I mean, they don't invite me ever. I mean, it's their holiday. Aww. They want to have it to themselves. It's fine. Maybe, maybe we'll have we'll have the Noltons over to the Rappel Buck House this year. I would like that. All right, you're all invited. You've been listening to Associate Restaurant Editor Joya Kramer and Restaurant and Drinks Editor Andrew Knowlton. And I'm Adam Rappaport, Editor-in-Chief of Bon Appetit. And coming up next, we've got Dawn Perry, and we're talking Christmas and Hanukkah and holiday cooking. Welcome back to the Bon Appetit Podcast. I'm Adam Rappaport, joined now by digital food editor Dawn Perry. Hey, Dawn. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. We are talking holiday cooking and recipes. Um, and in my mind, as I alluded to earlier, if it's the holidays, I'm making ham. Damn it, I'm making a ham. <laughs> there will be a roast beast and preferably ham. Yeah, okay. there, there will be ham, says the Jewish guy. Um but honestly, I, I have a, a holiday party every year, most years, my wife and I, um, and I always buy bone-in ham, and people are always like, oh my God, this is so good, this is so delicious, how did you make it, blah, blah, blah. You really just, all you have to do is put it in the oven. Yeah, the ham is made. You just have to glaze it if that's your thing. It's, yeah, it, it's like a hot dog. It's already cooked. <laughs> uh, so buy a good one, buy a bone-in smoked ham. This is not a country ham. We're not talking about like a cured prosciutto-like meat. And yeah, and a glaze is essentially, I just typically reach in the fridge if I have some orange marmalade or apricot marmalade, dump some of that in a pot, a little bit of Dijon mustard, bourbon or rum, simmer it till it loosens up, and then just glaze the outside of the ham and throw it in the oven. Um, two things to remember, it's nice to score a ham, right? Beautiful scoring. So you take a nice sharp knife and make a little diamond pattern on the skin on the outside, which is very easy, just sort of cross cross hatch. Lovely presentation. And that's what gives it all those nice little crispy, burnished, shellacked bits on the outside. Um, you put it in a roasting pan on a rack. Um, always remember to put a little bit of water on the bottom hmm, of the pan. Interesting. Because typically if you don't, all that nice, beautiful glaze drips to the bottom of the pan, and then it immediately burns. And you don't want to do that. You pop in the oven, about a 12-pound t- ham is probably an hour and a half or so. Baste it, glaze it as it cooks every 20 or 30 minutes. You kind of can't screw it up. It's true. Uh, one thing I like to do at the end, if it's not crispy enough on top, hit it with a broiler. <gasps> I love a broiler. I will broil everything. There's nothing better than the broiler, the most underused and underappreciated kitchen tool. Adam knows that I think there's a time and a place for the broiler, <laughs> but I'll give it to him. Here, yes, the broiler will help to caramelize those sugars, give you the crispy, crackly top. All right, so you take it out. I always like to serve it with Martin's potato rolls, my That's favorite. so weird. Oh, my God, you're being sarcastic. <laughs> Adam also loves Martin's potato rolls. Now, how do you feel then about a biscuit option? Well, um, like, for instance, if I'm going to Andrew Knowlton's house, our, uh-huh. our famously southern restaurant and drinks editor, um, I expect there to be homemade biscuits. Um, 
the Jewish guy from Washington, D.C. here is not making homemade biscuits. But listen, I mean, everyone loves homemade biscuits, right? Yeah. Yeah. What about you? We usually go rolls, actually, but this year I'm going to make biscuits. And the main thing to keep in mind is, yes, you want a tender biscuit, but it's a vehicle in this case. So Mm. it shouldn't be the tenderest biscuit you ever encountered because it's not going to be able to handle the ham. Yeah. So. Um, Dijon mustard, cornichon. I love the little cornichon. I like a little chutney. Chutney. Chutney's nice. But you know, Dawn. There are other meats in the kingdom of holiday centerpieces, correct? Other beasts. Other beasts. We have a story in the December issue of Bon Appetit called The Fish, the Fowl, and the Roast. I'm obsessed with the horseradish and parsley stuffed ribeye roast. That roast is awesome. I'll tell you why. With all these, the fish, the fowl, and the roast in this case, the meat is the thing. Like, the there's not a long ingredient list. You invest in a good piece of meat like this, and you don't need to do a lot to it. It will be expensive, but it's worth it. The, the rib roast is the most marbled, flavorful cut of beef there is. Um, salt and pepper it aggressively. Make it rain. Make it rain. In this case, we've got a little horseradish parsley stuffing. Um, but you don't need to do much because the meat is so flavorful. What you do need, you need to get the temperature right, correct? Absolutely. If you buy one thing for the cook in your life, it should be an instant read digital thermometer. Yeah. Put it in a stuffing. I mean, and there's some pricier ones out there. They're actually totally worth it. Because you buy a big piece of meat like that, you don't want to screw it up by overcooking or undercooking it, and then you've got to stick it back in the oven. Yeah, and you're spending 150 bucks on a roast. Do it right. We make the point in the magazine that as you're testing the doneness of, of the roast, pay close attention towards the end of the roasting time because the the doneness sort of accelerates as it's in there longer. And then once you take the roast out, the residual heat continues to cook at another 10 degrees or so. And I think typically for uh, medium rare, it's around 130 or so. Yeah, I think that's sort of the target end temp. So maybe you take it out more like at 120. Yeah, And assuming that it's going to continue to cook. And you want that sort of rosy interior. A perfect medium rare is exactly what you want. And I think people sometimes freak out about the resting time. Same with the turkey um, around Thanksgiving. That thing is so hot. It's a big piece of meat. It's going to stay hot. You can leave that thing for 20, 30 minutes and cut into it, and it's still going to be steaming and too hot to the touch. Uh, Also in the story, we talk about duck. I have never made duck at home because I'm scared to. I'm like, if the legs are done, then the breasts are overcooked, or there's too much fat, or what is the secret to roasting duck at home? You could do it. I would say secret number one, just go ahead and turn off your smoke alarm. Yes. Just to be safe. (laughs) Open the windows. Um, But... Duck is not that scary. It's just a bird. What you're going for is like rosy breast and done legs. Yeah. And what we do in the magazine is we we score the breast, uh, the top of it across like a line, 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 line. A on, chevron. A chevron pattern on the duck. And that sort of um, helps the fat render and you get lots more, once again, crispy bits on the duck. Because when it comes down to it, everything is about the crispy bits, correct? It is. And it also... The rendering of the fat is like bonus land. All that duck fat can be used for so many things. Yeah, save the duck fat. Beyond make... just basting and making the roast itself delicious. Yeah, make roast potatoes down the road. Keep it. Keep it in your fridge. Keep it in your freezer. It's liquid gold. You could make, just off the top of my head, duck fat caramel was a thing that happened in the test kitchen. No. Couple... Yes, delicious. Really? Slightly savory. Eat it on ice cream. Wow, that's the craziest thing I've heard since I've been at Bon Appetit. Uh, speaking about duck fat caramel, the holidays is, is, is about sweets and treats. Am I am I wrong? No, you are correct, sir. What's, what's your go-to holiday uh, sweet bit? 
Well, my grandmother used to make these Betsy Bloomingdale's favorite cookies. Wow. I don't know where she found the recipe, but they're a thing. You can find them on the internet. But they have cornflakes and coconut and pecans in them. So they're just like a buttery drop cookie, but they're delicious. And that was always what we had at the end of the Christmas meal. Do you do um, the whole, do you make cookies? We, we, you know, every December for the last three years, we've had cookies on our cover. This year, we also include how to make your own little lollipops, uh, brittle, um, fudge. Um, are you are you a gift giver of that sort? Yeah, I am an edible gift giver, yes. So like, what, what have you made and, and how do you package it? I always find the packaging very interesting. I mean, even before packaging, what you want to consider is, does this thing travel well? Brittles travel well. Um, chewier cookies generally travel better than, say, like a sandy shortbread. That yeah. thing's going to crumble by the time it gets to... Aunt June's house or whoever. Yeah, I think you have to think of my um, my wife's grandmother, Yankee, who's awesome. Um, she's still around. That's wonderful. She makes a Eastern European specialty they call chudica, which is kind of a fried dough sort of situation, which is great when she when it comes out of the fryer. Mm-hmm. The problem is when it arrives at your house four days later in a FedEx package or whatever UPS. It's not as crispy and light <laughs> and airy, um, but we still get them every year. Um, and so the thought is awesome. But yeah, you, you do need to think about what travels well. Um, I, like I said, I also think it, it is nice to go invest in some nice gift boxes or get some cool ribbons. Um, yeah, the box, the packaging does matter. And that can be the gift. You know, I like to mm. buy, I bought, I shouldn't even say this because go I'm going to be outed before I give the gifts. Got some beautiful handmade plates I'll pile those up with cookies or candies or whatever and wrap that. And so they get the plate and the cookies. Wow, clever. I was down in the test kitchen today, and you guys were making a bouche de Noël. Oh, yeah. That Which is the, you know, see the French sort of the Christmas log, where you make the, the jelly roll, you fill it with cream, you yeah. roll it up, you make it put frosting and make it pretend like it looks like a tree. Yeah, it's hysterical. So uh, our associate food editor, Claire Safetz, developed this one. And Claire likes to make especially baked goods, kind of as challenging as she can make it for herself. So Claire is actually starting a new column on bonappetit.com called Baking 123. That's sort of the working title. We'll see if that's how it stays. But so for this one, Baking 1 is just your basic jelly roll. So it's a super easy sort of meringue-based cake that you bake in... A sheet pan. A, a rim baking sheet. Chocolate, cake, whipped cream. You roll it up, dust it with powdered sugar... Then, level two, you can make a chestnut mousse mm. filling. All of these things are easy. They just sort of take, take time. time. And then level three is the full the full level tree. Level three is the tree. So there's some creative trimming. You carve off a couple of hunks and glue them on top, coming off at an angle. You make the little meringue mushrooms. Little meringue mushrooms. Dusted with cocoa powder so it looks like dirt. And then you paint the bottom with chocolate so it looks like the mushroom gills. Mm. Yeah, and I think this is these obviously if you have a little kid or children, these are it's a fun holiday project as Super you're fun. at home with the kids for a week and you need something to do, you you make a boost to Noel and then you devour it. Well, thank you for listening. I'm Adam Rappaport, and that is Dawn Perry, digital food editor. Thanks, Adam. Coming up next, we've got Jenny Rosenstrack. We'll be talking holiday entertaining with the kids and family. Welcome back to the Bon Appetit Podcast. I'm Adam Rappaport, and I'm now here with executive editor Christine Malky, also mother of Max. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. 
And our very special guest, Jenny Rosentrack, mom to Phoebe and Abby, who along with their husband, Andy Ward, writes a blog, Dinner, A Love Story, plus two cookbooks, correct, Jenny? Two cookbooks, yes. Congratulations Thank on that. Thank you very much. Oh, oh, but wait, there's more. Okay. And they're the authors of the family cooking column in Bon Appetit, The Providers. Oh, yeah. So uh, welcome to the show, guys. We are talking family entertaining for the holidays. Um, and I was thinking about this. It's, it's interesting. I mean, we all have kids, um, but... Oh, 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 yeah, I forgot. I'm father of Marlon, age seven. And how old is Max? Seven. He's two. Two? Abby. We have 12 and 11, <gasps> so, nice. yeah. Nice. Bam, bam. That oh, happened. God. <laughs> How'd that happen? I don't even know. Um, but it's interesting. I was just thinking about this, that that kids are, at least, you know, my seven-year-old, now just turned seven, um, you know, obsessed with presents and gifts and all that stuff and Christmas and Hanukkah and birthdays. Um, but it, I always think, in retrospect, I think what you look back on and remember as a kid is not the presents, but the food that you grew up eating, that your mom would make, and then your favorite, you know, holiday desserts and the meals, and and it is such a rich and important part of your upbringing. And, and I just want to talk about that today, and let, let's talk about cooking and eating with your kids. And, and Jenny, you've written a lot about cooking with your kids, which yes. I love that notion. I have, I'm full of disclosure, have not been able to accomplish that with Marlon. No, I mean, I don't, I, we cook with our kids when we have long stretches of time. We're not, um, when the clock is ticking and it's like a weeknight, I, mm-hmm. the furthest thing from my mind is asking <laughs> a kid to help me. And holiday cooking tends to be a little bit more fancy in general and more elaborate. So it's the perfect kind of recipe. So give like a, someone like me who struggles with this, like what are some tips? Like when did you get the kids in Involved and what sort of tasks would you have them do? Well, I would think a seven-year-old would be really good at stirring, so any kind of baking. And for Max, when our kids were that little all the time, we used to just sort of have a separate thing going and have him pretend to be cooking or have the girls pretend to be cooking. So oh. we would, we'd call it um, like this little babysitter in a box where we would just kind of keep dry rice and not flour and plastic cups that you can kind of you know, pretend to be mixing and stirring and while they stay clear away from the actual cooking. Christine, do you bring Max in the kitchen yet? I do. He's He really loves it. He loves to be in the kitchen. My husband Oliver is a great cook and Max actually will go and get his stool and bring it into the kitchen and put it because he wants to watch us do it. But of yeah. course I have a I have a Blue Star stove, which is a great stove, but it's also not insulated. Like you can actually fit a full sheet tray in there because it's not insulated and it's the worst thing you can have for a two-year-old. But yes, he very much wants to be in the kitchen. It's interesting. I actually I look back... People always ask me, like, you know, how did you get into food writing and why and this and that? And and if I'm sort of armchair psychiatrist here, like, look back that I was the, the youngest of three kids. And when my brother and sister were off to school, I basically, you know, as a three- or four-year-old, wanted to be hanging out with my mom. And my mom was always in the kitchen cooking. And I, and I do think that, that probably had a, a big effect on just getting to know food, getting to know ingredients. I remember, like, she would... Of course, I'm probably not even allowed to say this these days, but, you know, when she'd be making meatloaf, she'd always give me a pinch of the meatloaf mixture before it was baked. Oh and I was like, that was the best thing ever. And I guess I was like, wow, I'm basically eating steak tartare at age three. But, you know, at the but this, like I said, those seminal memories, um, it's interesting. So then, uh, Jenny, in terms of when did your kids start to do actual cooking instead of pretend cooking with you? It's hard to pinpoint the exact moment, although we still have to sort of say, how about you cook tonight instead of us? You know, it's never something that's voluntary on their part, except for this past October for our anniversary, my eldest actually said, we are cooking dinner for you tonight. Oh, wow. So they did the whole thing. They did the whole thing. I mean, there was, you know, that book, Fanny at Chez Panisse, the 
yeah. best book for kids as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. Why? It's just so simple. And it was written like 25 years ago, and yet it completely holds up. And the recipes are very basic and... Fanny at Shape and Eat. Yeah, it's Alice Waters' daughter. I can't believe yep. Fanny is over 30 now. Yeah, yeah I don't those. even want to think about it. <laughs> but, it. But today, Phoebe reached right for that book, like she always does, and then she made the pizza, and Abby wanted to make this kind of shredded carrot and parsley salad, but we didn't feel quite comfortable with the shredder. The shredder, just, yeah. yeah. So, so we ended up sort of introducing her to the mini well, food processor. Yeah, I mean, that is something you have to be mindful of in the kitchen. Just there are tools that if you don't know what you're doing, like, you know, microplanes Oof. and mandolins. Mandolins. Like, you know, like I get scared watching our test cooks down there in the kitchen with like a garlic clove. I'm like, I don't, what are you doing? Uh, um, On the other hand, that's how, you know, I remember reaching into the oven when I was a kid and burning. Mm. Gotta learn your yeah. lesson. And, you know, Abby does the same thing all the time. And It's amazing how often I still do that. I'll, like, pan roast a steak in a skillet in the oven. I take it out, put it on the stovetop, do something, Always. go back, uh-huh. reach for that handle. Yes. You're like, oh, yeah. ah! So you never the learn. to tan scars. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, not only does it hurt so much, but you're so furious at yourself for being so <laughs> dumb to do that again. Yeah, you got an 11-year-old. Yeah. How many times do I have to learn this lesson? Um, so are there, are there any dishes that you've, like desserts or holiday desserts that you guys cook together, bake together? We have this tradition on New Year's Eve where it's only the family. It's just the four of us. We'll always have lobsters on the table. But then Phoebe insists, I don't know when this began, but she decided at one point that she wanted to fry pineapple in butter (laughs) and sprinkle cinnamon on it. And this was, she was like six or seven at the time, and she thought it was very inspired, and so did we. We were obviously delighted that she wanted to try something. But, um, and it remains to this day kind of, you know, the thing that she makes on New Year's Eve. I don't know why, but it's an hors d'oeuvre. So we have it a lot. Yes, it's very. (laughs) She wrap it in ham. So progressive. It's very, very, we try to focus on how impressed we are that, you know, she's, she can do the whole thing by herself. I think, I think that's another great tip for, for new parents. Um, if the kids feel like they're the ones who made the decision, they're much more oh, apt to absolutely. get behind something. Yeah. Let's talk about actually eating. And Christine, so Max is almost two? Or? He's just turned two. Just turned so two. we are really creating traditions sort of starting this year because obviously last year I was still kind of carrying him around. Yeah. And the year before that I was, you know, not really – aware that it was Christmas. <laughs> but um, In the days, I know, I remember that one. Marlon was born in December and that first Christmas, oof. this is a sidebar, guys, but I remember he was like 20 <laughs> days old and it was Christmas Eve and no babysitter. And it's just like us at home, it's dark and cold and like 3 a.m. just wah, wah, wah. Like would not, one of those nights where they just won't stop and you don't know what's wrong with them and does he have a fever or not. And eventually I had to get him in the stroller and just push him up and down 7th Avenue. And it was like 20 degrees out. Oh, and sure. for, like, for, for like 35, 40 minutes until he finally fell asleep. But it was just like, and woke up the next morning on Christmas Day and everything's closed in New York. And we ended up at this great gay bar, Julius, near oh, us sure. in the West great Village. Oh, sure, cheeseburgers. Yeah, I've been there forever. And it's like, nothing's open. The three of us <laughs> in, this, <laughs> in this gay dive bar drinking Bloody Marys. Well, Marlon didn't have a Bloody Mary. Eating... Um, Pineapple cream cheese dip with a uh, celery stick. Wait, did Phoebe make that? I was going to say, pineapple. Yeah, it should be. See, it all comes around. So, all right, so do you bring – all right, sidebar over. Do you bring Max to the table when you guys are actually eating? Oh, yes. Now we're – we How? really uh, – we push his little high chair up or sometimes he gets to sit in the big boy chair. I mean, one question I have with that is, which I always found challenging with Marlon, is that he would typically want to eat earlier. Mm. I'll give you the honest answer. Um, sometimes we'll just have cocktails while he has dinner, or we'll have uh, a little bite. And but, then you're, but you're together at the table. We're together at the table. I and then after important. he goes down, we'll have the 8 o'clock, you know, 
full on. So, Jenny, in terms of when, when did you sort of start integrating the kids into the table? Like, obviously, you have weeknight dining. Right. But then that's different from weekend dining. So do you, how do you try to balance it out? It's the one time all day that we're all together. And um, I'm lucky enough uh, that I work from home so I can make it happen all the time. It's not that easy for everybody. But, but I kind of feel like we're thinking about dinner like the second we get up, you know, we're <laughs> like if it's the weekend, if it's Monday, you know, we're like, what's, what's going to be the end of the day? What's the end game here? We have to sort of keep our eyes on the prize to get through the, the next, you know, um, the, the with, day. With um, celebratory meals like Christmas Eve or Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving, um, there's much debate in the in the halls of Bon Appetit about the kids' table. Oh, man. Um, Not as much debate as there is around potato chips, I yes. have to say. <laughs> I mean, I, and I've argued with Andrew Knowlton about this, our restaurant editor, who's vehemently against the kids' table. I happen to be for it because on a long sort of celebratory meal like Thanksgiving, I don't necessarily think it's, I don't know, is it fair to expect kids to sit there with a bunch of adults as we talk about adult stuff for an hour and a half they yeah. basically want to eat for five minutes and then go. It's more, is it, a, is it fair to the parents who have to kind of stress and Well, I didn't want to bring that up. Yes, but, yeah, so, mean, but where do you stand on this? My philosophy on dinner in general and definitely for holidays is to try to make it as pleasant an experience as possible. And so in my mind, whatever makes the parents happy, and I don't ever expect a kid to sit there and talk about current events for an hour and a half. I think if they can stay at the table long enough to sort of have a moment of grace, you know, where you say... I don't know, for Thanksgiving, what you're grateful for, or New Year's Eve, what you're hoping might happen in the yeah. year to come. That's enough. All right, let's wrap it up with this. What are our goals for our children? I would love to get Marlon the coming year. We struggle with getting him to eat interesting stuff, and he's just defiant in his stance. Um, although, you know, we, we have some luck when we're sort of blending stuff in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, vegetables into the puree vegetables into the mac and cheese that he doesn't know about or kale into the breadcrumbs that we make for the mac and cheese or smoothies with all sorts of good stuff. Um, but, yeah, it, my goal in the year ahead with Marlon is just to get him to be not necessarily an adventurous eater, but a little bit more open-minded, that there are so many delicious things out there that aren't necessarily even, quote-unquote, good for you. They're just good. Different. <laughs> Give them a try. So that, that's my goal. What do you got with Max? Uh, I want to be a more adventurous cook for Max. I've mm. sort of kept him at the same level of what I was, you know, making him in the beginning. So chickpeas and rice yeah, and yeah. avocado and pretty bland. And actually, uh, my husband and I were testing a Mexican cookbook this summer, and we made this tomatillo salsa, and he loves spice and flavor. And wow. so now I can actually get him to eat things if I say it's spicy. So I want to take the initiative I, I and get more flavor. I just remember when we were working on our Ottolenghi story, I was at uh, Yodam's house and his son, Max, was then seven months old. And Max had a plate of everything that was on the table, you know, za'atar, yeah. sumac, all the spices, Aleppo pepper, and he ate everything. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, I need to become a <laughs> yeah. more adventurous cook for my child. What about you, Jenny? Um my goal is to have my kids make lunch for themselves mm-hmm. every single wow. day. They've gotten sort of good at it. I mean, or I should say they've gotten sort of better at it, but they <laughs> still have to be reminded, and I would like it to just be automatic. Well, in 2015, it's going to happen. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the Bon Appetit podcast. Christine Mulkey, executive editor. And thank Jenny, you. Jenny Rosenstrack, author of Dinner, A Love Story, blog, and cookbooks. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. And to you. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. This was episode two of the Bon Appetit podcast. You can catch us at bonappetit.com or on iTunes. Happy holidays. Thank you.